Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, November 2nd, and I'm your consumer goods host, Emily Flippin. Today, I am joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst, Asit Sharma, and we're going to be talking about Rent the Runway. It's a business looking to redefine what it means to have rent clothes, to have your wardrobe in the cloud, as they put it. Asit, thank you so much for joining. Emily, thank you for having me, especially after all the times that I myself have stumbled down the runway. I'm looking forward to talking about <laughs> this one with you. This is one that, especially for our female listeners out there, they may be intimately familiar with. Um, in fact, prepping today's show, I thought that I already knew what Rent the Runway's business model was before coming into the research and actually found myself pretty wrong. Um, in my mind, Rent the Runway was a site that you could go to and you could get a dress for a one-off occasion. So let's say you had a friend's wedding to go to, a formal event. You can go rent yourself a, a relatively inexpensive designer dress for one night out on the town and then send it back the next day. And actually, while this is the, the premise behind the Rent the Runway, they've actually pivoted to a subscription-based model. Um, almost more like, I, I won't call it Stitch Fix, but Stitch Fix-esque. More than 80% of their revenue actually comes from subscription-style agreements with customers that pay monthly fees to gain access to their wardrobe in the cloud. I was actually really intrigued by this pivoting. Me too, Emily. I remember this company from several years ago, so I had the same visual in my uh, mind's eye. But as I read through this prospectus, it's sort of like, to me, if um, if ThreadUp and Stitch Fix had a child, it might look a little bit like this. And I, I should say, before we go any further, I have to um, now make up for, I think, the last week where I was really um, very critical of a CEO letter we read at the beginning of a prospectus. I actually really enjoyed um, Jennifer Hyman. She's the co-founder of Rent the Runway. Her shareholder letter, it begins like this. It started with a dress. So she's watching her sister Becky um, about to, to put money on the credit card to buy a dress for one event. And this idea comes into her mind to start a business which rents high fashion clothing. But as you note, it's merged, it's um, migrated into a different business model. Yes, and it's so interesting because when people think about uh, special occasion rental clothes, I think at least my mind immediately goes to tuxes on prom night, right? The classic example of what rental clothes may look like. But this co-founder was finding that women were spending a ton of time and a ton of money on clothes that were worn only a handful of times, in most cases, just once. And there's an opportunity there. <laughs> So it's it's really interesting, and actually the use cases extend far beyond what I imagined. Again, I keep talking about these events, right? You're talking about an occasional formal event that you need a long dress to go towards. But actually, they found that more than 50% of their use cases currently are actually from customers that say they're using it for casual wear. So going out on the weekend or sitting at home, they even said lounge wear has some of their use cases. So I started kind of racking my brain thinking about all the ways that Rent the Runway could apply to. It's not just people who are posting on Instagram and need to have a new designer sweater for every post, but theoretically, just regular people looking to look nice on an everyday basis. 
one statistic really jumped out at me. Uh, so they have different levels of subscription, but for the uh, subscription, which is the most, uh, I think, long-lasting during a year, the typical customer will wear uh, those articles that come from Rent the Runway 83 times in a year, which was just amazing because it really does invert the idea of having a special piece of clothing for one event versus renting clothes that are fashionable that you feel good in and want to wear multiple times during a year. They also give some statistics on the uh, price savings of buying, let's say, one outfit at retail. I think the the price point they show in their prospectus is 350 bucks versus the utilization you get from renting that uh, item at a much lower cost and um, being able to enjoy it for an extended period of time. So this is a different business. But um, I guess to, to really understand whether we like it as an investment or not, Emily, we should start breaking down the economics of this model. This this is where things get a little dicey. I will say I was happy to see them moving a little bit away from what would normally be a very high upfront cost model business. So only around 46% of their clothing today is purchased wholesale by Rent the Runway. So that's them going directly and owning those items themselves, those pieces of clothing that are then rented out. 56% um, of those clothing is actually used on either consignment or through what they call exclusive designs, where Rent the Runway doesn't pay up front or pays very little up front, and instead just revenue shares with a partner, the luxury designer partner. And that's a higher margin business. It's, an, it's a more asset light business. And the executive or exclusive designs are made to actually be more durable. So it theoretically should extend the life of those uh, those pieces of clothing over time. I, I like how these percentages shifted uh, from prior years. In fiscal 2019, wholesale, wholesale items equaled 74% of their purchased items, Emily, and those shifted, as you said, to just 46% um, that were purchased wholesale in fiscal 2020. What that means is that they are able to have fewer touches uh, on these pieces of clothing, they are an inventory-based model for the clothes that they manufacture or purchase wholesale. So they subcontract some manufacturing. And that's an expensive process if you don't do it right. And that's why I was comparing them a bit. If we've got Stitch Fix, the subscription model on one side, I was comparing them to ThreadUp, the uh, fashion e-tailer, which also works in a sustainable fashion and is in the used clothing market. They're really, really good at handling their inventory, um, and you have to, to be very highly focused on cost in this business. As we'll see as we talk further about this model, it is not an easy one to make a profit on. Yes, and I have to say, part of my other day job here at The Fool is working on a portfolio called Trendspotter. And we've gotten a lot of questions. Well, what about resale as a trend? Why aren't we playing this this industry in that portfolio? And it's so funny because I see the very real tailwinds that exist for the resale market. I mean, there's no denying that demand is there. And I love what it means for the world, right? Extending the useful life of our clothes, uh, making it less financially burdensome, but also just less wasteful. But whenever we get into the actual financials of businesses that are trying to make resale work, it just gets really challenging. And Rent the Runway is in a weird position of both giving the option for people to purchase those clothings directly from them, but also just trying to extend the useful life of 
this sale of clothing so they can rent it out more times. And it just makes a really challenging financial picture. And we'll talk more about that. The good news is is that management does think they have some sort of flywheel effect here. So they collect data on the types of clothing that are rented and purchased. And the more they're able to provide things like personalized styles, um, as well as provide that information to their partners, that data for their partners, like which items rent most frequently, how long they last, et cetera. Uh, Theoretically, the more customers and the more partners they pull in. And they did find that subscribers who have used their personalized recommendations had nearly three times the average tenure of the subscribers that didn't engage. Although they didn't actually provide what those average tenures were. And so I found myself just kind of scratching my head a bit, wondering how long the average person says subscribed, uh, but interesting nonetheless. I, I agree. I, you know, I just before we came on for this episode, I was looking a little bit more closely at a chart or a table that is they have on their product ROI, so the return on investment of a typical product. And it seems like over the last couple of fiscal years, or at least um, from fiscal 2019 to the first half of this fiscal year, Emily, they've got the same lifetime turns per unit. So you might think that uh, a higher subscription base and, and people who are um, looking at their recommendations, ordering more, will equal more uh, lifetime turns per unit. So there there should be a correlation between what people want to buy and that item being in demand. But that number hasn't really changed. They're spending more upfront for each uh, piece of clothing, but they're extracting a little bit more revenue uh, from each piece of uh, clothing for that. So the profit margins on a product basis are going up slightly. So there, there's some numbers that are starting to shift a, a little bit to make this look like the model could have some legs. But overall, um, as we're going to see, it's um, it's not something that leaps out to me as viable as it scales. There has to be, in any kind of business which is a little bit capital heavy, a path to eventual scaling, You know the, that fixed cost base and, and getting a nice margin on product. I don't really see it here. And I think this might have something to do with an observation you made to me about that subscriber base. Yes, this is so interesting. When I heard that Rent the Runway was going public, I thought to myself, what a strange time to choose to do so, because certainly 2020 was not a great year for them. The formal events were off, people were unemployed. This is a luxury that was certainly being stripped from budgets. So I was really interested to see what their business looked like in 2019, how it's rebounded into 2021. But man, things were worse than I expected. If this is, if you have done a little bit of research into Rent the Runway prior to listening to today's podcast, you may be aware it's being ripped apart by financial media right now because of its financial performance. And I, I can understand why. When you look at just how small the business is, it's a little bit concerning. Um, at the end of 2020, they had only 95,000 total subscribers and only 55,000 of those were active paying subscribers. So not people who had paused their subscription. Now, this was somewhat due to COVID, right? Paying subscribers were down from 133,000 in 2019, but it shows just how easy this is for people to cancel when times get hard. And while the number has rebounded a little bit in 2021, uh, most recently there were 127,000 total subscribers, just under 100,000 of them were active. It's still only a very small portion of their nearly two and a half million lifetime customers. So this is very much an expensive product, uh, verging in the prices of $100 a month to $200, $300 a month. That is 
not necessarily something that is maybe going to appeal to a mass market the way that other resellers may. True. Fewer subscribers than I expected, Emily, and a higher subscriber spend than I would have thought. So their statistics show that an average customer can spend up to 3800 or so on average with them each year. That's a statistic that was surprising to me. I didn't realize, and this is primarily uh, women's clothing, that the, the average or baseline metric for a wardrobe purchase and replenishment every year is about 4000 bucks. I actually, I mean, I've got a wide range of friends and I have few of my um, female friends. We'll start with my wife, who purchase anywhere near that a year in clothing. So that number surprises me, and I, I think that what it indicates is that the market for this as a, a, a closet in the cloud, which is how they market it, is smaller than one would expect. And as we get out of COVID and move to a world which is more hybrid in in work, then you're cutting down the use cases for clothing. You're cutting down the reasons that people may want to use the service. Now, for those uh, women who really love to feel good in their clothing, look good, and don't mind a little bit of a higher spend, maybe for their leisure clothes, uh, there's still a, a big market. But when you think about the exogenous factors that are hitting not just the resale market, but the fashion market in general, couple that with this small subscriber base and sort of the slim ROI that I was talking about, you get a recipe for losses. <laughs> so um, maybe, Emily, walk us through what that looks like in a few big numbers. And I've got some comments there as well. So let me let me mention what's good here that's going to yeah, make their right. losses sound strange, is that they actually do an interesting job of breaking down what they call their product return on investment, their product ROI, right? How much they pay up front to get a piece of, of clothing in, how much they spend to fulfill it, um, how many turns it gets, so how many times it's rented out, and then figuring out the lifetime value of that product itself. It's, it's almost taking a product approach as opposed to a customer approach. But they keep their customer acquisition costs very low. Less than 10% of revenue has been spent on marketing every year on average, which is pretty low for this business. And they actually calculate their own product ROI in terms of profit in the first half of 2021 at 3.6 times. So they're theoretically making money on each piece of clothing that they acquire. And with customer acquisition costs below $55 and spend, I think on average, somewhere around $100 to $150 for customers within the first year, you would think to yourself, well, this is painting up to be a really profitable picture. But in actuality, the numbers paint a totally different story. When you look at just their net losses, net losses have been expanding over time. And they have cumulative losses of over $670 million. And despite that low overhead in terms of marketing costs, they still have a ton of costs associated with fulfillment, um, a lot of money spent upfront to acquire those customers. And then this very heavily depreciating asset, only 20 turns on average that that clothing goes through before it's no longer usable to be rented out on top of the revenue share that they have with their partners, it actually ends up being not that attractive economically. Yes. you know, uh, And I may be mistaken uh, in this, but I believe that the average depreciation period for the clothing that they have on their books is uh, three years, which is as fast as you amortize software. Now, that doesn't mean that they get rid of clothing in three years. If they're able to keep items for five years or longer, certainly they'll do it, but fashion shifts. So the 
numbers that they use to depreciate the, the clothing may be indicative, indicative of how long they can actually keep a piece before it really has uh, little demand in the marketplace. So that's one issue. And Emily, you're right. The, the cost associated with moving clothing inventory to hang on to it, to disposing of it, figuring out what's obsolete, those are, are not simple costs. You have to spend a lot of money to automate processes to make that profitable. They have not been able to do it yet. I was curious, just looking at the balance sheet, okay, uh, if I if I close my eyes to everything else and look at these cumulative losses, compare that to the assets on the balance sheet and the liabilities I see, what does that accumulated deficit account look like at the bottom of the balance sheet? How have the losses been supplied? They've been supplied through multiple preferred share issuances, and these are convertible shares. So the company has sort of a history of diluting its shareholders. Something else which bothered me about the balance sheet is they've got uh, a very large piece of debt relative to the size of, of the rest of the balance sheet. That is basically their uh, working capital line, which is more or less at this point equivalent to long-term debt. They were paying 15% interest on that. They've refinanced it in a subsequent event after the filing of this prospectus. So now they're only paying 12% on that debt. <laughs> you can hear my air quotes there around the word only. Um, and they are allowed to pay up to 5% of that interest in kind. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> so interest in kind is a is a is a very arcane um function in, in the finance world. You don't see it a lot these days. But what it means is that if I owe Emily interest and I have a bunch of bananas and I owe her, let's say, um, 12 bucks on a loan that I've got out to her, I can trade her some bananas for part of that interest and pay a little bit less out of my pocket. And that's exactly what this company is doing with its working capital financing. It is paying 12% on its line of credit, and it is offering warrants on its stock up to 5% of that total interest cost. So the cash burden is less, but you know who's picking that up? Yes, it is you and me, shareholder, if we buy this stock. So we're getting diluted two ways. This company likes to issue shares historically to supply its losses, and it likes to cut deals to try to make the burn on that high interest feel a little less um, hurtful on its cash bottom line. Now, I have to point out here that you don't start out with such financing uh, overnight. Once you get to, to what really is, wow, I mean, really high rates of interest, it takes a period of years where your model just isn't working. And this, you can just look at the terms on their debt and understand what the past history has been. I wanted to point out here that Emily did a, a very nice job of walking us through the product ROI. They also show, however, a five-year period, they've returned something like a 300% expansion to their retail clothing partners in terms of the gross merchandise value those partners have been able to sell on the platform. What that means is that this model is working really well for a lot of parties. It's working really well for the clothing partners who are selling more and more each year. It's working great for those 55,000 subscribers who can wear those items 83 times a year and uh, realize much less cost. It's working well for the lenders. 
it is working well for those who receive preferred shares. Who is this not going to work for? In my opinion, this might not be such a good deal for common uh, shareholders who buy into the company. There were a lot of things that confused me in this report. But I have to say, I think one of the things that confused me the most was actually, as you mentioned, that marketing spend and the customer acquisition. We spend a lot of time talking about unprofitable companies on industry focus. But companies are typically unprofitable because they're scaling really dramatically. And part of that scale, it means we're here to land grab. We're here to get a lot of customers all at once. And the value of those customers over time will mean that this venture ends up being really profitable for us at some point in the future. It is really strange to see a company that is posting um, over, I think for the first half of 2021, over $80 million in net losses while spending less than $10 million of that on marketing costs. I almost wonder why they have this strategic decision to spend so little on marketing if these these ROI numbers they have on their products as well as their customer costs are so economical. And it makes me think, well, it's really probably not that economical. They haven't been in a financial position to be able to spend money on marketing to scale up their product. They're just trying to make this very small customer base profitable. And it's not working at the scale that they exist with today. So I just found myself really scratching my head because it was such a strange, it really flipped the the script, I guess, on what we're accustomed to seeing with these subscription-based models, especially for things like clothing. Yes. And it makes me think, Emily, that the original pricing of the models were off and that the company somehow didn't optimize the way they should have priced this uh, the small customer base that's active now, I think maybe can rebound some after COVID. It's been more active in the past, not by a lot. But I wonder when you have such a high product ROI and you still have these big losses, yes, part of it you can see in product obsolescence, they've got these costs on its income statement, the high depreciation. But part of it is just that this model isn't scaling. They're putting money into marketing and they're not getting a yield. It's like a, a hamster uh, on that wheel, right? So this must be a, a lack of pricing power. They don't really have um, that much of competition. Sometimes you can start a business, however, and convince investors that this model will scale, but the pricing is off. The investors don't question it that uh, seriously. And you get a certain number of years into that model and you can't change customers' expectations. It would be very hard to go back now and raise those subscription prices by, I don't know, the 20 to 25% they would really need to start showing some ability to scale if revenue increases. And it is a mystery. I think it's a very great point, Emily, why they're not putting more money into marketing for that land grab to try to get more active customers. So, um, you know, as I mentioned to you, when we were exchanging slacks and preparing for this episode, this came across to me as as a company that was sort of irresistible to try to figure out what the mystery is here. You know from the start, you don't want to invest in it. But you you know, it's like a, I hate to say this, it is sort of like a a minor, I'm not going to call it a train wreck, but a minor car wreck on the road. You can't help but look as you go by. I found myself spending a lot more time on this than I expected to. Um, Emily, as you know, I got into the weeds and you helped me out um, looking at 
the exact way they're accounting for their overhead costs, just trying to do some thumbnail calculations. Everything seems a bit off here. There's another little mystery for, for those who are interested in nerding out on this in why on their income statement they lump together depreciation costs with uh, some revenue share costs on their, their below-the-line expenses. It's almost like they don't want you to break out what is the exact amount of revenue share that, that they have to pay to their partners? What is the amount of depreciation on the clothing that they own that they're recording? And what is the depreciation on their fixed assets? There's a little mystery in there that if I had the time, I'd try to unravel further. But uh, yeah, you know, a great story here, Emily. Um, I, I really love the, the concept. I, I like the metaphor of the closet in the cloud. I like that this empowers women, and I feel that there's so many great things about just trying to participate in the circular economy. But I, I flip this back to you as we sort of head out here. Uh, I, enough about my opinion. Would you be even interested in keeping this on your radar screen? I may keep it on my radar, not because I think it's going to turn around its business, but because I, I genuinely want it to succeed. I Again, I love when I see businesses that I think have really important missions. And while Rent the Runway is clearly a bit more luxury um, than something that is operating more downstream, I still think they're doing something important that has an opportunity. I just think, man, they're they are not executing well on, at, all, at all right now. I almost feel like it's too early for this company to be public. In addition to everything else we mentioned, their internal controls were a horrible mess, um, very much gave the impression that there's somebody sitting in front of an Excel sheet who is managing their financial statements. And I, I'm kind of being dramatic when I say that. But yeah, their journal entries right now are not being reviewed. They're largely manual processes. With the small number of subscribers they have, these huge losses, it just begs the question of, you know, why are you going public? And I think you answered that nicely, which is to say they need the money. Um, so, I'll keep an eye on it out of you know, maybe morbid curiosity, but I completely agree. This is not the type of business that I will be investing in anytime soon. Sounds good. We'll, we'll keep watching it then. Emily, this is so much fun. I appreciate it. Looking forward to the next one. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out to say hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet at us at mfindustryfocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Asit Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on! Fool on!